The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Um, it's very nice to be here. Um, I get to come down here. I live in Berkeley, so I get to come down here a few times a year. It seems to be uh, in the spring that I, I start showing up. So uh, nice to nice to be back. Um, and uh, I chose a topic tonight, uh, which I'm not sure it falls into any traditional Dharma talk, uh, but uh, just was what came up as I was um, thinking about what to talk about. And so the talk is going to be on hope and despair. Um, these are two, um, I guess, attitudes, feelings, energies that uh, are very powerful. And um, particularly this word hope is in the air a bit in our culture. And typically in the Buddhist world, um, hope is uh, considered to be uh, a kind of delusion. And uh, I believe uh, someone, I don't know if I've read it or if someone told me uh, about it, but that Pema Chodron actually kind of had a piece on that, uh, talking about the, the um, sort of uh, unskillfulness of hope. And, uh, and as I've sort of thought about it, last year I was asked to speak um, actually at a 12-step uh, Gathering it was this this kind of uh, recovery walk out in Martinez, and the topic was hope, and I went, oh no, <laughs> I can't talk about that. I'm a Buddhist. So um, as I thought about it, I realized that, that there were two different definitions uh, of the word that, uh, and I think that one of them, I think the definition that Pema was talking about is the idea of hoping for something. But it's kind of the, the verb to hope, that is uh, wishing that something would happen, but not um, really taking part in doing anything to make that happen. So it's hope then just in that form is just another form of desire. I want it to happen. I would like it to happen. Then, of course, we all fall into this. Um, sometimes in moments of despair, we fall into this kind of hope. Uh, and, and it's kind of the, it's the type of hope that I think of uh, as associated with prayer, also the kind of desperate prayer, uh, hoping that God will somehow intervene and take care of things. And the thing that makes it particularly unskillful as it relates to Buddhism is that uh, we are, asking something to happen without the karmic causes for it to happen. So um, we're asking for this to happen through fate. And, of course, the Buddha really made a very strong point whenever he was asked about fate, that, that things are not fated to be, but that everything 
that occurs is uh, unfolds through natural laws, through the, the law of karma. The other, but there's another kind of hope, and this is what I realized, fortunately, before I spoke to this uh, recovery group, that um, the other kind of hope is the hope that um, that th- things can change. And this is actually fundamental to Buddha's teachings. Uh, the Buddha said that he wouldn't even teach his practices and the Dharma as he taught it, if it were not possible to fulfill this path to come to freedom, if it were not possible to change. So typically, when we look at the Four Noble Truths, the truth of suffering, the cause of suffering, the end of suffering, and the way to the end of suffering, the third noble truth, the possibility of the end of suffering, is really the noble truth of hope. But it's not hoping. It's the one that lets us see that there is a possibility for change. Now, despair. uh, One of my favorite topics to ruminate on, especially in the winter. Despair is um, also like it's the opposite of hoping. It's not it's it's not believing in the possibility of change. It's believing that we are stuck in this place or I am stuck in this place with no possibility of change or growth. I'm going to suffer like this forever. And this is, again, an expression of what. In Buddhism, we would call ignorance or delusion. It's not recognizing that everything is constantly changing. Not only is everything constantly changing, but that through our own intention and through our own actions, we can move things in the in a positive direction or in a skillful direction in, in a way that we would like them to be. Nonetheless, it's somewhat understandable, uh, certainly in life itself, but particularly as we, when we look at the spiritual path, see that there are moments when this kind of uh, despair can, can come over us. So that one, of the, um, one of the qualities or uh, kind of, uh, one of the experiences, I guess I'll say, that, that um, is really the inspiration for practice according to some teachers, called samvega. Samvega is this quality of, of discontent and the sense that life as it's being offered to us through our culture or maybe through our families and as, as it's depicted, that it really is meaningless. That, that this, the, the idea of pursuing pleasure and accumulation that, that this is really pointless. Uh, and, and it's really, uh, this, this experience of Sambeg is actually quite common uh, uh, for teenagers and 
I, I know it was an experience I had. And I think it's, it's one in which when people are waking up to the world and starting to look at the world with fre- the fresh eyes that, that young people do, they often have this experience of seeing the hypocrisy and the shallowness of what's being presented as life in our culture. So in that experience, which is actually an experience of wisdom, it is possible if to get stuck. This actually has a parallel in the 12 steps as well, which is then step one, when we say we admit we were powerless over alcohol or drugs or whatever our particular addiction is. That that well, that's an awakening and it's a coming out of denial and there's a wisdom in it. It's also a place that's dangerous if we just stay there. And it's actually not uncommon that that people come to a point of realizing that they really have a problem, that they're addicts, that they're alcoholics, but that they don't believe that they can change. It's actually one of the things that I deal with a lot because people who come to my, uh, a lot of my teaching, uh, uh, as Marna mentioned, my, my book is about Buddhism and the 12 steps. And so a lot of my teaching is around that topic. And often people come to my classes and workshops and retreats uh, because they have been unhappy with or unable to uh, work in the traditional uh, 12-step world and that model. And, and there's this kind of despair there because they're kind of stuck in that place of, of knowing that they have a problem but not seeing the possibility of change. So in, in Buddhism, that possibility of change is the third noble truth when the Buddha has Describe suffering, which again can be kind of a cause for despair. If all we do is look at the first noble truth, then we just see life as sickness, old age and death. And and there's really um, not much to look forward to. Um, But then the second noble truth, the Buddhist sort of shows what the cause is. And at least then we see why it's happening. But still, it doesn't give us too much Hope and, and indeed, sometimes Buddhism is depicted in this way as a very negative religion. And, and I'm sure many of you have, have heard that or seen that at different times. People kind of just hear, oh, it's about suffering. But of course, the third noble truth, then Buddha says, well, now that we understand the cause, we know that it's possible to, in some way, reverse that cause. So if the cause of suffering is clinging, or, uh, craving, then if we can learn to let go, then we will find freedom. And, that, and that's what he, so that's what the third noble truth is saying. That, you know, it, it, you, can, you can get out of this situation. In the 12 steps, it's the second step that, that offers us this. The second step says we came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Now, this is where it kind of brings in what uh, develops into sort of talking about higher power or God, but... Um, uh, my interpretation of that, my understanding of that is that that's not if we if we look at that through a Buddhist lens, we don't have to be thinking about a personal or or kind of creator God that that the, that power that that in fact, the Eightfold Path is one form of power. In fact, the, the law of karma is a tremendous power. So when we're talking about hope and coming out of despair, we're really talking about using the power of karma to change. 
in practice, it's really not uncommon for people to fall into this uh, despair in subtle ways. I think probably most of us have had moments where we thought, I'm not getting anywhere or I'm no good at this. Many people I hear say, uh, especially in the beginning of practice, oh, you know, I just think too much and I just, you know, I'm just really not made to be a meditator. Of course, my response when someone says they think too much is to say, so you're saying that I don't think very much. That's why I'm a good meditator. Are you calling me stupid? But this idea, and, you know, it's very typical for us to at least to judge ourselves. Oh, what's wrong with me? You know, I'm, and to not see that, that um, of course, you know, we can change. Of course, we can learn this, just as with any other skill. It just takes practice. Um, but I think this is a very common human condition the the delusion the delusion that things will continue to be the way they are right now is a very stubborn human tendency whatever your mood is there's a tendency to think that's the way it's going to be however your life is you might know that yeah someday I'll lose this job sometime my kids will grow up but, so, but what's really in close, what we're really, how we're really believe, acting and believing moment to moment very often is that things will stay the way they are. And this is, of course, a fundamental delusion. So one of the, we could say then that one of the delusions of hope is the idea that we're going to get somewhere that um, will be permanently happy or permanently secure. And so, so we ha- if we're going to embrace hope in, in the sense of karma and change, then we're also going to have to accept that, that a part of that is the cycles. Now, I say that and... It's important to acknowledge that this was really what the Buddha was trying to get away from, was these cycles of existence. Be they momentary moods or, or lifetime after lifetime. So, when the Buddha was faced with perhaps his own experience of despair, which was when he realized that his the idyllic life that he had lived as a young as a child and a young man was founded on a falsehood that and this is at least how the story is told that he was raised to not know about sickness old age and death and certainly although i don't recall seeing any reference in the suttas of the buddha the buddha's mood uh you know, the, the suttas aren't sort of oriented quite in that way. But we can kind of 
uh, I think, at least read between the lines to, to think, to believe, or at least, um, you know, consider that having been raised in this way and then at the age of 29 to realize it's not like that. And seeing a sick person, seeing a dead person, seeing an old person and realizing, oh, this is this is not what I thought it was. There had to be some sense of despair for him, at least for a moment. Now, what then inspired him, his hope then came from these are called the four heavenly messengers. If you've been around for a while, you may have heard about them. And the fourth heavenly messenger, besides sickness, old age, and death, which are, we don't typically think of as terribly heavenly, but um, the fourth was a monastic or a, a wandering sadhu that the Buddha saw. And seeing him, he thought, oh, because he was told that this was a person who was looking for the truth, Buddha thought maybe that's a way out. And really... Um, the Buddha's uh, goal that he set out was kind of audacious in a way. He didn't just say, I want to figure out a way to be happy. He said, I want to find a way to not have to go through sickness, old age and death anymore. So this is a pretty, this is a pretty uh, extreme kind of a hope. Um, but it really comes out of his also very deep experience of suffering, his very deep engagement with the truth of suffering and seeing that ultimately it really is this very unsatisfying cycle that life really doesn't bring you to any place of permanent satisfaction. And why would we want to keep going through that? Um, you know, I confess that as I get older and my body becomes less comfortable, I start to understand that better, really. Um, I, one of the things that the Buddha talks about is, is the misery of old age. And so on the night of his enlightenment, you know, he had this uh, amazing kind of experience of being able to go back and see all of his own lifetimes, lifetime after lifetime, and see himself being born, aging, and dying over and over and over. And he's just like, ah, oh, this is just, you know, it's really not worth it. Which is very un-American in a way, you know. <laughs> I mean, we're all about life, you know. It's so great. You, know, you can have it all. <laughs> and certainly, you know, even the way Buddhism is presented in the West, at least, uh, isn't isn't really saying a whole lot, isn't really emphasizing this. But if we're going to be really at least honest about where the founder of this tradition was coming from, I think it's important to look at that. But his then hope was that he could transcend all of that, that he could come to this place where he would not be born again. You know, the the sutta on loving kindness, the Metta Sutta, a beautiful sutta. I'm sure many of you have chanted it here and uh, goes, says, has beautiful lines about um, you know, radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and outwards to the 
depths and downwards to the depths. And, and one of my favorite lines, even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings. You know, very loving, beautiful sutta. The last line of the sutta says that if you do all this stuff and you practice really sincerely and do a really good job, you will not be born again into this world. Doesn't sound like, is that what love is supposed to bring us to? Not being born again into this world? My goodness. Um, and it really kind of, it stands out very distinctly. If you've ever chanted the sutta, it, its tone, it's, it's, uh, it's almost shocking to come at that moment. So, this idea of of really letting go, deeply letting go, I think is what what this teaching is leading to. We could say, and another way of understanding the third noble truth is to say that because the second noble truth says that clinging is the cause of suffering, the third noble truth says, if I can let go, I will be free. And so the fourth noble truth, which is the way to the end of suffering, can be said to be, a teaching on how to let go. It's the Eightfold Path. So each of those elements is part of what teaches us to let go. So when we let go, ultimately we are letting go of despair and of hope. There, because that, this has to come, both of these have to, have to come to an end for us to end our experience of cycling through samsara. So, um, that's all I have to say right now on that topic. And um, so I've, I've left enough time if people want to um, make any comments or questions or uh, anything else. And, and, and actually, I'm open to anything you might want to bring up if it even even if it doesn't relate directly to uh, that topic. Thank you. And I guess we have a microphone, right? So so it gets recorded. Maybe that's not an encouragement to (laughs) ask a question. No one will know it's you, except your close friends. will recognize your voice. struck by how infrequently I consider the notion of hope as it applies to Buddhism. And I, don't, I, don't, I don't necessarily consider myself a practicing Buddhist, but is there, is there a place somewhere between hope and despair, maybe, that one can exist, how important, how much importance would you put on hope in the practice? Yeah, thank you. Um, 
Well, one of the, thing that, the things that we can say about hope and despair is that they're both not about this present moment, largely. I mean, we kind of are despairing in the present moment, but mostly we're despairing because we don't think it's going to change, I think. And our hope, hope is certainly about hoping that this is going to change. So in that regard, yeah, I, it's, they're not, um, I mean, I don't recommend despair at any time. Um, and hope, but, but if it happens to arrive, I think, you know, the hope in terms, as, as I've talked about it, is, is a useful antidote, at least, or, or hopefully an antidote. Get, start getting into trouble now. Um, but, but I would agree that uh, in terms of, uh, uh, I don't even know, if I'd say ideally, but not even necessarily ideally, that practice is not about either. Practice is about being here in the present moment. And in a sense, hope and despair are kind of uh, balancing Things that that when either one is emphasized, maybe we're out of balance in some way. So so uh, um, equanimity is the place that I would say we're looking to arrive at in some sense. I mean, this is really the quality that the Buddha uh, in some ways holds above all others. So. Um, so that, that's the place, I think, to answer the, your question. That, that's where I think we're really working to be. That's, that's the, the place which is neither hoping nor despairing. It is just present with what is and accepting of what is. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. Um, despair, yeah. I, today I had a, no, yesterday actually, I had a situation of um, where I was in despair. <laughs> and um, I had this sudden, um, let's call it insight, <laughs> that um, I at this point really liked feeling this. Um, attitude, feeling, like you said, of despair because it, um, I was very honest in this situation. I think the first time really honest. And I thought, you know what? If you have that feeling, it just simply shows that you're not equipped at this point to deal with the situation. And um, it, I was really thankful for, for feeling that or for seeing that or for whatevering it. And... Um, I thought, okay, despair is fine as long as I understand that it's kind of a stop sign that shows you, hey, um, either give yourself some time or see if you can learn something to deal with a certain situation in a different way. And um, so I kind of redefined my despair moments with like a stop sign or something. Mm-hmm. doesn't mean I catch it right away, but at yeah. least at some point. And um, so it has positive features, too, I think, even though it feels really desperate sometimes. Right. I, I don't think that there's um, much reason to pursue a spiritual path if you haven't suffered. 
I mean, why bother? Yeah. Gil, Gil made the statement uh, at some point. He said uh, he would like to have a bumper sticker which says, I stop for suffering. I, that was really yeah. nice. Yeah, yeah um, I mean, that's one of the sort of cliches of, you know, pain is the touchstone of spiritual growth, and it's really the inspiration for spiritual growth. And that's clearly depicted in the Buddha's story, you know, as he was growing up and he was living this life of pleasure, he wasn't pursuing spiritual growth particularly, as far as we know. It was only when he saw suffering that he saw uh, that he then set out on his journey. Um, And, you know, and again, that uh, that Samvega, that that element of seeing how things, you know, don't uh, that, that life as it's presented to us is not ultimately satisfying. Very important. And that's part of, to me, it's part of maturity, actually. It's part of growing up and seeing the truth. You know, as children, we often, if we're fortunate, live in a pretty idealized world and we don't really see the depth of, of uh, complication that life entails. And, um, you know, to make the tra- transition to see that complication and yet engage it and embrace it and, and, and use it as a way of growing, that, that's, the, that's what I would call maturing. Right? Many of us get stuck in between. I know I was stuck in between for about 20 years. Um, yeah. One of the things that uh, occurs to me as well in terms of these things that I've talked about this evening, that one of the practices I do is the the Buddha recommended these five daily recollections. And um, it's, you know, since the Buddha recommended recollecting these things every day, I thought, I figured, I'll try that. I do it. Uh, And so, and the five daily recollections are to remember sickness, old age, death and change, the first four. And then the fifth one is the truth of karma. So we could say that the first four are these kind of breaking us down and and um, breaking through our um, our illusions about life. And then the fourth one is the corrective. Yeah, there's all these problems, but there is this law of karma. And if you harmonize with it, if you live in harmony with it, then there's a possibility of change. But not unless you do that. Things aren't, you're not going to have any kind of freedom if you don't um, really work in this way and live in harmony with the law of karma. The other thing that I've found through doing that contemplation because it, again, it can be something that's troubling if you're not, if your heart is not feeling strong and you start contemplating your own uh, mortality and your kind of the, the inevitability of decay of your body, um, there, there can be this kind of sinking feeling. But uh, one of the things I've seen through it is that one of the reasons I think the Buddha recommended contemplating this every day also is to, is to under, undermine 
our attachment to our life, to our body and to our life and to ourselves. So if letting go of ego and identity is one of the critical forms of letting go that have to happen for us to reach freedom, then if we then this might be one of the kind of tough love ways that the Buddha suggests that to us or encourages us to keep looking at like this is not it. This will not bring you satisfaction. You are not this. (laughs) So that eventually you kind of go, okay, fine. (laughs) What do I do? Yes, continuing at that, I always find it interesting when we're talking about sort of the end goal being to um, to free yourself from the cycle of uh, of rebirth, mm-hmm. of that um, being appealing to the you know that aspect of um, ego as well that you were referring to um, maybe as a teenager that really uh, really starts to see through. Um, and go into a little bit of despair about whatever reality we're in, um, and you know goes into that place of feeling like um, you shouldn't have to be going through this, or um, so then it being uh, you know a bit risky maybe to talk in those terms. Um, because it invites this sort of, I don't know, skip, skipping through the, uh, or, or idea that we can um, get to that in this life, or that that should be, um, it sort of skips over how you would actually uh, do that every day. And uh, particularly when, I'm how you deal with that in people with addictions who are maybe really current reality and in terms of accepting that they are here you know we are here in this life and it is the learning ground and um, before we get to uh, you know not having to ever do it again there needs to be this embracing of it yeah Yeah, well one of the one of the three forms of of uh, desire that the Buddha talks about as the causes of suffering one of them is the desire to not be. So this is the this is kind of the um, if we take um, if we misunderstand the teaching on on ending rebirth, we can think oh it, it can become nihilism. Right? And so yeah, um, so. One of the things I, I guess I would emphasize then is that the Buddha talks about suffering and the end of suffering. And that the end of suffering is happiness. It's one way of defining the end of suffering. Um, and you know, in terms of how I would teach it, you know, I, I think it's really important to um, teach to what people can hear. And, and to um, present what's useful for people. 
people who are in a place already of nihilism don't need to hear that about you know this kind of teaching because it's easily going to be misunderstood. Um, and I think we can safely say that the Buddha was a happy person, for, certainly for the 45 years after he attained enlightenment. 45, I think. Yeah. Um, and he didn't choose after attaining enlightenment to commit suicide, as he might have. He might have said, well, I'm not going to be born again. This is a waste of time. Why bother? I might as well just jump in the river here. Um, But he saw that um, although there isn't ultimate satisfaction to be gained from this life, that there can be value in it. And And the value that he found pretty clearly was in serving others, trying to help other people be free from suffering, which is really a core value of Buddhism um, and uh, also a core value of the 12 steps. There's the the 12 steps as we tried to help other alcoholics and addicts. So so yeah, I think uh, that it's, it is, there is this risk and that it's, that it's important to, for ourselves to understand where we are just in this moment and what's a skillful way to handle that. Is a skillful thing to focus on our mortality and let go of our clinging in that way or is a skillful thing to focus on the possibility of change and the possibility of happiness. Um, Certainly, you know, the Buddha, you know, in, in the seven factors of enlightenment, you know, there's joy in there, uh, and tranquility. He's not at all suggesting that we should be miserable. In fact, he's saying that if you're sitting around being miserable, you're not actually going to be able to come to this enlightenment. You have to develop happiness. It's one of the things you have to develop. And, it, and of course, I mean, you not, it's sort of you have to develop it. It's, Another way of saying it is that this path develops that. That naturally arises out of it. So I think it's um, ultimately uh, wise to just as much as possible stay with our present experience and cultivate that mindfulness that leads to, that mindfulness and concentration that lead to that awakening. Um, Because certainly... um, no one that I know, uh, or who have, no one's told me anyway, <laughs> that they know uh, when they're going to become enlightened. So, um, and whether they're going to be have to live another life or not. So, uh, seems like we certainly want to make the best that we can of this life. So we should probably. Um, begin to close. Um, we just have a couple of minutes. Uh, are there any closing announcements you have to make? Okay, so let's just do a, a little dedication merit before we go.
So just coming into your body again. This teaching on compassion, loving kindness guides us and inspires us to be of service. The Bodhisattva who seeks to enlighten all beings before becoming fully enlightened themselves. Sometimes these ideals can seem quite lofty and unattainable. But when we recognize that each time we practice, each time we come together, some wisdom and inspiration, some opening of the heart comes to us, some insight. And if we carry that with us and share that, whether just through our behavior or whether We actually communicate it to others. In that way, we are practicing as bodhisattvas. So may the efforts of our practice together tonight be of benefit to all beings. May all beings be free from suffering, free from the round of samsara. Thank you very much.